kind of a teachable moment this morning before I get into this. Did you know that um, sometimes when the Holy Spirit comes, things get messy? Seems a little hot. That runs counter to the way a lot of people think because, you know, we, we are told in Scripture that, that our God is a God of order, which is true. But I think our God is also a God of enthusiasm. And so there are times when the Holy Spirit comes and it doesn't always look like what we think it ought to look like. Some of you are going to have to start going to the why to get in a little bit better shape for worship. Because uh, Laney's worship is sort of a full body workout sort of thing. That's right. So just keep that in mind because, I, you know, my guess is that for some of you, what happened this morning was a little bit uncomfortable. You were like, well, you know, I'm not so sure about this. Well, I am. And um, so you just have to understand that that's what, that's what real worship feels like, right? And so, uh, like I said, get to the why this week, and you'll be fine next Sunday. All right, let's pray before I, uh, before I get going here. Father, we thank you for, uh, for this day. We thank you for all that you have given us, and we thank you for the opportunity to praise you for that. Father, be in this word, be in this time, that I would speak only your truth. Bless both the giving and the hearing of this word. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. This is really sensitive. How about now? Is that still good? I couldn't figure out what that was, and then I realized it was me breathing. <laughs> Sorry, can't stop. Not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent. All right. So by now, I think most of you that have been here uh, a while, you've heard me say that I grew up in the Catholic Church. Um, well, here it is. This is Holy Rosary Catholic Church in Evansville, Indiana. Now that's, that was my home church growing up. Now, what you wouldn't know, unless I told you, was that it was an all-white church. Now, it, it wasn't stated anywhere that it was supposed to be an all-white church. It just was. It was because it was out in the suburbs. It was in some new development in town, and there just weren't any people of color anywhere that, that were living out there. And so, for eight years, I went to the grade school that was located right next to the church, Holy Rosary Grade School. And um, by the time that I finished eighth grade, the only interaction that I had had with a black person was a woman named Lethia Glass who came to uh, clean our house when my mother had cancer. 
Now, it's a little bit of an interesting side note. Lethia had a son whose name was Ron. And Ron went on to star as Detective Harris in Barney Miller. So um, he was a uh, graduate of the University of Evansville in their drama program. So City is very proud of him. And so from there, I went to Wright's Memorial High School. Seems like I went to a, a lot of stone buildings. Um, and in four years at Wright's Memorial High School, I had maybe three black classmates and one black teammate. Then I went to Butler University. And in four years there, I had a total of four black teammates. And pretty much for the most part, they were the only blacks on campus. Now, if it's starting to sound like I grew up as a committed racist, I really didn't. I never heard my father say a single disparaging thing about any person of another color. If he had those views, he certainly kept them to himself, and I'm guessing that I probably, something would have leaked out in the 20-some years that I knew him. And there wasn't any real obvious racism that I was aware of going on in the city. In fact, um, Evansville was one of the stops of the Underground Railroad for slaves that were crossing the Mississippi River. They came into Evansville and then were routed north from there. And all of the public high schools in the city uh, were racially mixed. And I went to Butler not because of any sort of racial issue, but because they were willing to pay for my school. It just happened to be a smaller private university, which meant that it was cost prohibitive for some people to attend both black and white. But the simple fact is that other than on the basketball court, I never really had the opportunity to associate with anybody of a different ethnic background until I went to seminary. Oops, where did the seminary go? There it is. Virginia Union University is a historically black university that's located in downtown Richmond. And when I was in seminary, I was a, essentially a single drop of cream in a very black cup of coffee. <laughs> but I had a wonderful time there. I had a great experience. And it was really during that time that this whole idea of pastoring a diverse church really got birthed in me. And it, I think it was because I, you know, I was exposed to different ways of looking at the scriptures and, and different religious traditions and wonderfully different music. And so I guess you could say that in some sense I sort of had an aha moment. And I would be willing to bet that for many of you, your stories probably are not that different from mine. You probably grew up in a neighborhood that wasn't integrated. If your school was integrated, and I'm guessing that unless you played sports, 
your association with people of a different ethnos was pretty limited. It's possible that you may have had some acquaintances with people of a different ethnic background, but would you go so far as to say that you had friendships? Some of you grew up in the South, where bigotry and animus between the races have been brewing and festering in ways that my Midwestern mindset just doesn't really know. If you attended another church before you came here, the odds are pretty good that it was not ethnically mixed. You see, for most of Christianity, Martin Luther King's words from 60 years ago still ring true today, that 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. Have you had an aha moment when it comes to people of ethnic backgrounds different than your own? A moment when your eyes were opened to the worth and the value of all people, not just the ones that look like you. You see, I, as I graduated from Virginia Uni Union University and began my journey of establishing this church, my aha moment came along for the ride. And because of it, one of the pillars of the Harmony Vineyard Way is diversity. And it says, we are committed to ethnic diversity. We believe all churches, and specifically our church family, should consist of people from every nation, tribe, and people. God's picture of the church in the book of Revelation. But as I have studied diversity, and I think most of you know I even got my doctorate in it, I've come to believe that diversity is only one side of a two-sided coin. And the other half of that is unity. Because you can't have biblical diversity unless you also have unity. Just as you can't have biblical unity unless you have diversity. So there's a corresponding pillar of unity in the Harmony Vineyard Way, and it says this. Together as a family, we will laugh, cry, struggle, succeed, disagree, and reconcile. And in all things, give glory to God who unites us in our faith. There's a number of places in scripture that speak of this idea of unity and diversity. But I found one in an unusual place. It's in chapter 16 of Paul's letter to the Roman church, the very last chapter. It's what I jokingly refer to as flyover text. Now, you know what flyover states are? You know, all those states between New York and California that really don't matter to the social elites. You know, it's just we got to go over them to get to the other good place. But basically, it means they're not very important. Well, Romans 16, um, in, in the other places in Scripture where we find this, like genealogies and lists of names and things, we kind of think of those as flyover text. 
right? It's not very important. We can just kind of skim over that um, to get to a more important part, you know. And anyway, who can pronounce all those names? But I think if we think that way, we are essentially saying that they serve no purpose being there. But the honest answer is they do, and I really hope that I can prove that to you today. So if you have a Bible with me, or with you, I have one with me, <laughs> but you can't have it, I need it, um, turn to Romans 16, verse 1, <clears throat> and we're going to read through verse 16. So this is Paul at the end of his letter that he has written to the Roman church, and he's now giving out some personal greetings to people. So he says this. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Centuria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my loved Eponetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Statius. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, Chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. All right. So who are these people? Who are these people that Paul is sending all of these greetings to? Well, let's take a look for a minute. So we'll start out with Phoebe, right? And more than likely, Paul's mentioning Phoebe first because she's the one who's actually going to Rome and she's carrying the letter with her to bring it to the Roman church, okay? Uh, we know she's a fellow believer. She's more than likely a Gentile, and she comes from Centuria. But what's sort of interesting about Phoebe is that she's a little bit more than an ordinary believer. Because he refers to her using the Greek word diakonos, which can be translated as servant, but it can also be translated as deacon. However, with this official sounding addition of of the church of Centuria, it's more likely that Paul is identifying Phoebe as holder, as a holder of the office of deacon. Now, we have no solid first century evidence about the, the nature of the ministry of deacons, but um, 
it more than likely focused on care for the poor uh, and the weaker members of the church. So they were sort of the caregivers, you know, the ones that took care of the needy and those that uh, didn't have anybody else. And so Paul's, he's commending Phoebe really for two reasons. Um, first of all, he wants the Romans to sort of um, receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. And so that would include not only welcoming her into their fellowship, um, but it would also mean assisting her to find food and lodging and things like that. That's, that's how you got those things, because there, there weren't hotels, there weren't restaurants, there weren't all those things that we know of today. So when somebody like Phoebe's traveling to a new city, the best way to ensure that you have those things is you get a letter of commendation from somebody who already knew those people, who can say, hey, this is a good person, please take care of her. And so that's what this, this part of the letter is for, with Phoebe. Now he also says that they should help her because um, she has herself also been a benefactor of many, including and of me myself. And so in this instance, benefactor here very likely means patron. Okay, so we know what patrons are, patrons of the arts or people who donate money um, and some, in some cases time to further that cause. Okay, and so it's very likely that Phoebe was probably a, high, a woman of fairly high social standing. Uh, she had some wealth and uh, she put that status and her resources and her time at the service of, of traveling Christians like Paul, who needed help and support. So what Paul is saying is, this woman has done these things for me. Now I need you to do the same for her. Okay, so that's Phoebe. So now we'll move on to Prisca and Aquila. Now some translations might say Priscilla. Um, Prisca is more accurate. Um, Priscilla is the diminutive of Prisca, so it's sort of like a nickname, but Prisca would be her, probably her given name. Uh, and Aquila means eagle in Latin. Now, the connection here between these folks is that uh, Aquila was a tent maker, right? And so that's what Paul did. And so that's probably how they met and formed a friendship, was that they both were tent makers. Um, they... Uh, they were from Pontus, the town of Pontus, but more than likely were originally from Rome and were expelled when Claudius expelled all of the Jews from Rome. And so this might be their coming back to the city that they actually lived in. Uh, they, were, they got connected with Paul. They went with him to Ephesus, and then they remained there as he kind of went on some more of his journeys. Um, they were evidently a really good Christian couple. They were the ones that uh, essentially instructed Apollos, who we read about in other places in the New Testament. They had a church in their house, so they were willing to, to house Christians and, and to be uh, their church home. And he, he refers to them as his fellow workers, and that's a term that in the New Testament is always used of people who worked together in the fellowship of the gospel. Okay? So whenever you see that idea of fellow workers, that's what uh, Paul or somebody else is saying. Now let's move on to Epinetus. 
Now, this is the only place in Scripture that, that this gentleman is named. So we don't know a lot about him, but Paul does call him my beloved one, okay, which suggests that he probably knows him personally. So this is a personal friend. However, we don't want to kind of overinterpret that because uh, Paul is very gracious, and he tries to say something nice about everybody. Did you notice that? So we don't want to necessarily read too much into that, but it's pretty likely that in this case he probably did know him. And he also indicates that uh, he was the first convert in the Roman province of Asia, um, whose cultural center was Ephesus. So there's the likelihood here is that he is probably traveling with Prisca and Aquila. It's probably, he probably came to Christ perhaps in their home church. So there's a connection with him as well. And so he's coming to Rome either to conduct business of some nature or just simply to participate in the ministry. Then we come to Mary. Now Mary is a very common name, especially in Jewish circles at this time. And uh, so for this reason, many of the commentators who've looked at this scripture really believe that she is Jewish. But we can't say that for sure because there were Gentiles named Mary too. So we don't really know. We don't really know anything about her ethnic status. But Paul does say that she was a really hard worker, that she worked hard, uh, but we don't really know what that work entailed. All right? Then we come to Andronicus and Junia. Now he calls them my kinsmen, which means these folks definitely are Jewish. And uh, Andronicus is a pretty common name in the Greek. So he was probably a Greek convert to Judaism. Uh, now, when it comes to Junia, there's a lot of debate and interestingly enough, the debate is over whether Junia is a male or a female. Because, and it goes into the whole, the, the language of whether this is a nickname or whether this is a shortened form of another name. Um, and so there's a lot of, you know, scholars just going back and forth. But most likely, because Junia actually is a female name in this rendering, it's very likely that they were husband and wife, okay? Uh, and so, in addition to this natural relationship that Paul shared with him, there was also sort of a spiritual connection here as well because at some point, at some time, this couple was persecuted. They were put in prison. Uh, and they were done so for the sake of the gospel. We have no idea if they were in prison at the same time as Paul, in the same place as Paul, but at some point, he became aware of the fact that they were as well imprisoned for the work that was going on. And then we have Ampliatus. Now, he's not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament either, but it's possible that he is the same Ampliatus who was, whose name was found in one of the catacombs of a woman named Domitilla. Uh, she was not only wealthy, but she was a member of the imperial family and who was also apparently a Christian, all right? And so we know that much, and we think that he was probably either a slave or a freed slave, freedman. Then we have Urbanus and Statius. 
Now, Urbanus is probably a slave or a freedman, um, but unlike some of the other people that we've talked about, don't really believe that um, Paul knows him personally, really doesn't know, uh, know much about him, maybe just only knows him by reputation, you know, has heard the name, and so he's sending greetings. Uh, and poor Statius, we know nothing at all about him. I guess there's just no way given the name or there's, no, there's not enough clues in other, in other texts outside scripture to give us any indication of who he was. So he's unknown. Then we come with uh, Apelles, who is approved in Christ, and then those of the family of Aristobulus. Um, don't really know anything about Apelles either. Um, but he is honored by what, in, in Paul's language, because uh, Paul says he's approved in Christ. And this could mean that he has somehow proved himself in some sort of a difficult test or, um, you know, just something where his faith was, was sort of challenged and uh, he proved himself worthy. And so Paul commends him for that in this letter. Now, since Paul didn't greet Aristobulus directly, it's pretty likely that he was not a Christian. But his family is. Uh, probably by family, what he's referring to are those who were members of his household, and in most cases, probably slaves that came to know Christ. And it's pretty likely that this Aristobulus is the same one who was the brother of Herod Agrippa I. Um, and if so, he actually is dead at the writing of this letter. Um, so that is uh, why he... You know, he doesn't really say anything other than he greets the, the family, the, the household, essentially, of Aristobulus. Then he says, greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Now, Herodian was apparently a freed man who is also a Jew. Once again, the, the term kinsman is used. And was more than likely in service to one of the Herods. Right? That's sort of how he would get this name. Because we don't... There's no other mention of a name like this anywhere in Roman documents and things like that. So uh, the likely impression or the likely interpretation of this is that he was somehow a servant or served in the household of one of the Herods. Um, Narcissus was a fairly well-known freedman who served the Emperor Claudius. Uh, and he committed suicide just before Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. And so once again, he's greeting those who've been members of his household. Then we come to Tryphena and Tryphosa. Uh, probably slaves or freed women, probably sisters, perhaps twins. Don't know that, but the similarity of their name sort of would lead you to think that. Um, what's sort of interesting about this is that their names come from a word that means delicate or dainty. And uh, so we don't really know if Paul is, is somehow playing with the words here when he says that they worked hard in the Lord. Um, Persis is probably also a slave or a freed woman who is also beloved and who also worked hard. These women are hard workers. Amen.
Now Rufus is sort of it. Oops, did I miss one? Where did, there's Rufus. What's kind of interesting about Rufus is that Rufus may be the son of Simon of Cyrene. Do you remember who Simon of Cyrene was? Helped carry the cross of Christ. Was pulled into this by the Roman soldiers. And if you read, going back in Mark's gospel and the, his account of the crucifixion, it mentions Rufus. And so in calling Rufus uh, the elect one, Paul is somehow singling him out, uh, either because uh, he, there was some sort of outstanding quality about him. Um, and we don't know for sure if he's the same Rufus, but it's interesting just to sort of speculate on that. But Paul also is conveying greetings to Rufus's mother, um, who on some occasion has evidently um, been hospitable to Paul, right? Has taken him in and treated him almost as, as he, his own mother would. Then we get to one of those sentences that are nothing but names. Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, and Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Um, don't really know anything about this group of men or women. Uh, the only thing that we do know is that Hermes was probably a slave or a freedman. Um, and so, and the brothers who are with them would tell us that more than likely these guys are members of a home, some sort of a home church, right? They're all part of the same church. And then the brothers are the ones that maybe Paul does not know or remember their names. Then we have Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister in Olympus. Now once again, the fact that we've got Philologus and Julia sort of put together here would indicate that they are probably husband and wife. And that uh, Nereus and his sister, the way that is written, probably means that Nereus is their son and that his sister, whose, whose name Paul doesn't know. Um, but this couple, too, have obviously opened their home and have a church that is meeting with them as well. Uh, and so the only name of those folks that Paul seems to know is Olympus. Uh, but it's very likely she was part of this church family that they, were a, that they were all a part of. And then we get to the final verse where he talks about greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now this was a fairly common form of greeting in the ancient church. Um, and especially in the Jewish faith. The uh, kiss of peace was something that we know goes at least as far back as the second century. Because um, it was at that time that it sort of became part of the Christian literature. I mean, growing up in... Um, in the Catholic Church, I remember there was a passing of the peace that was part of our liturgy, where you were to greet. Uh, I didn't see a lot of kissing going on, but there were some handshakes, maybe a hug or two. Um, that was back when I didn't think hugging guys was okay. I was like, yeah, I'm not too sure about that. Um, but what Paul's probably envisioning here is a worship gathering uh, in which they're all together, and this letter is read, and then they're to greet each other in this way. So those were all of the folks, at least in part, who make up this church in Rome. So let's break it down a little bit. There's 26 people that were mentioned by name. 
plus two other individuals that we don't know of, Rufus, Rufus's mother and Nereus's sister. So the breakdown looks like this. There were 17 men, nine women, two couples, five slaves, two persons of distinction, three fellow Jews, and 23 Gentiles. And I think we can draw at least two conclusions as we look at this list. First, is that the church in Rome was extremely diverse. There were males, females, slaves, freedmen, Jews, Gentiles, the well-to-do and the well-thought-of. It's a pretty diverse group. And you have to keep in mind, they didn't have racial constructs the way we do then. That's a more recent invention. That's not the way they thought back then. And so that group would represent a very diverse body at that time and in that place. And the second that's maybe not as readily apparent is that this is a very unified church. Now, why, why would I say that? Well, I'll tell you why. Because if you read the first 15 chapters of this letter, you would note the absence of any mention of any issues that are going on in this church. They weren't dealing with disorderly worship or false teachers or people thinking that they were more important than somebody else because of who baptized them. Those were all issues that show up in Paul's other letters to the other churches that he wrote. But he doesn't really bring any of that kind of correction to the church in Rome. And since he didn't hesitate to do it in other places, I have to believe he wouldn't have hesitated here. And so their conclusion I'm drawing from this is that it's very likely those, that there just wasn't that going on. And so the Church of Rome, at least in Paul's day, was both diverse and unified. Both sides of the coin I mentioned earlier. So I think the takeaway from this is pretty simple. Healthy churches are both diverse and unified. I'd like to make it more complicated than that, sound more scholarly or more intelligent, but the fact is, it's plain and simple truth. But there's a catch. You see, signs on a wall don't make a church either diverse or unified. There's got to be some action. People must take these truths to heart and then act accordingly. You see, without action and without commitment, these words are nothing more than a nice sentiment, a lofty ideal. They sound good on a website, but they might as well be on a tombstone because a church that can't embrace them and live them out is as good as dead. If you read through the Old Testament, and especially the book of Second Chronicles, you run into a character there named King Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah was one of the good guy kings. Right? There's 
I always describe reading through Kings and Chronicles as sort of like riding a roller coaster because you've got good king, bad king, good king, bad king. And it's kind of amazing that, you know, like the sons of the good kings will watch everything their dad does and then go do the exact opposite. So I don't know, maybe is that, that's maybe not as unusual as I think it is. But the other thing happens too. They watch him do evil and then they go out and, and they, they go the other way. And that's what Hezekiah did right? Um, he took the throne when he was 25 years old. And almost immediately, he set about trying to rectify all of the wrong that his father, King Ahaz, had done. And it was at his urging and under his direction that we read this in, in 2 Chronicles 31. It says, All Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the asherim and broke down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin and in Ephraim and Manasseh until they had destroyed them all. It's referring to all of the places of idol worship. All the places that were evil in the kingdom of God, where there was only one to be truly worshipped. And so Hezekiah understood that. And even though his father had um, been a party to creating all of these places, he went out and he built these altars and he erected these poles. And he, you know, they did some horrible sacrificing of children and things like that. Um, Hezekiah didn't buy into it, and he went the other direction. It is time for all of us to become Hezekiahs and to tear down the high places and the altars of racial distrust and divisiveness in our neighborhoods and in our cities and across our country. It is time for us to do right in the sight of the Lord, just as is credited to Hezekiah. But before that can happen, before any of us can go out and impact our world in that way, we must first tear down the high places and the altars of racial distrust and divisiveness that live in our own heart. It breaks my heart to see trucks driving around the city flying the Confederate flag. I just don't get it. I mean, I understand, you know, being proud of your culture or your heritage or whatever. Can you imagine how, I mean, I'm German, all right? I don't go around waving a Nazi flag. <laughs> I'm thinking that wouldn't be looked too kindly <laughs> by some people.
So, I mean, hear my heart here. Maybe if I'm not saying this the right way, understand where I'm coming from. But that's offensive to some people. I don't, you know, I, like I said, I get the Southern heritage thing. But there are other ways to celebrate your heritage than the display of a losing war flag. Okay? Just a, here's a, here's a quick note. The South lost. <laughs> the flag belongs in a museum along with our other historical flags, like the one that had the 13 stars representing the original colonies and then all of the other ones that we had as we added states to the Union. That's fine. It's history. I don't think it should be destroyed, but I don't think it should be celebrated. And I don't know what else you know, there may be that's brewing in you or has taken root in you somehow. But I just had the strongest sense that as we sort of close this for today, we're supposed to do something about that. Can you come back up? Should you please turn the lights out, back off, please? I'm going to ask Elias and Karen and uh, Rich and Darlene to come up. Why don't you guys go and stand over there? And you two stand over here. All right, in a moment, I'm going to ask Lainey to, uh, to just play some, some worship music. But like I said, before we can have any sort of credibility, before we can actually go out and affect our world in any way, we've got to get rid of what's inside of us. And some of you, I don't know who, maybe have or are harboring some sort of issue with black people. And some of you may be harboring some sort of an issue with whites or with Hispanics. So here's what we're going to do. It's time to deal with that. We're going to get all that out today. We're going to just lay it at the foot of the cross. We're going to ask for forgiveness. We're going to repent of any sort of thoughts or actions or anything that we've taken in the past. And we're going to be done with it forever. Because like I said, we can't truly be a biblically diverse church unless we are unified. And so I have asked two of uh, our elders, members of our elder board, Elias and Rich and their wives, to come up and to be representative of those differing groups of people. And so if you are harboring anything, any sort of issue, anything. I mean, we're going to take a moment here and pray. But if there is anything negative of a racial nature that is still in you in some way, don't leave here unless you get rid of it. 
And what you're, you, you now you can, you don't have to come up and do that. But I would encourage you to. Because there's simply something profoundly powerful about expressing that and, and actually repenting of it to someone and then receiving the forgiveness that comes with it. And I can tell you that Karen and Elias are two of the sweetest people I have ever met. And if you have a problem, if you've had, you know, if you've had some issue, they're not going to judge you. They're not going to think less of you. They're just going to love you and offer you forgiveness. And I would say the same thing about Rich and Darlene. And they are sort of not only rep they are sort of the all other <laughs> category here. <laughs> all right. Um, I wish we had more Hispanic members, but we don't right now. And so if there is some other people group <laughs> that has been a sticking point with you, then I'd like you to go to them. So I'm going to pray now. And just kind of pray a, a blessing over us. And then uh, Lainey's going to play. And, and that's this will sort of be our... Um, There'll be no, no further dismissal or anything. You're welcome to stay as long as you like. You're welcome to leave. But we're just going to stay in worship and in ministry for a while. And so go to the Lord and ask him. Ask him to tell you if any sort of this issue still remains in you. You may think you've gotten rid of it, but he'll tell you whether or not you have dealt with all of it or not. And if he speaks to you, then act on it. Be obedient. Deal with it. Get free from it. So we can all move on together and do the amazing things that I know God wants this church to do. So, Father, I thank you. I just thank you for uh, this word today. I thank you that you put it on my heart so long ago to truly desire a church that is different in so many ways. Speak to all of us as we continue to worship you and help us to, to find any hidden places, places that we maybe think we've dealt with that still remain so that we may be free. So we just turn this time now over to you, Lord God. Bless those who are here. Bless them as they leave today. Guide and direct them in the week ahead. And we give you thanks and praise. And ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.